We're going to be right there in 1 Peter 3 in just a minute, so I hope you will take a Bible and turn there with me. I want to spend our time for the next few minutes right there in those five verses for the most part. I forgot to mention one thing earlier when I was up here, and that is that Marla also said there are slots where you can volunteer to help next Sunday in our blood drive. And so if you can give some of your time next Sunday, they would appreciate it very much. You can see, and you can also sign up, um, see Marla, or sign up for that in, at the table in the foyer to my right when you're leaving today. So I hope you'll will consider that perhaps. There are a couple of things in Peter's life that make this text remarkable. Do you remember... You remember that time when, when uh, Jesus had said a time or two that he was going to Jerusalem? You know, he, he kept saying this to the disciples. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And he would say things pretty, pretty clearly. At times he would say, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified, but I will rise the third day. Remember that? He'd say that again and, and again. Especially as the day got closer, he would mention that repeatedly. One time... Peter said, no, you're not going to go to Jerusalem. We, we can't, let that, you can't let that happen. This, this, this should not happen. This was one of those times where Jesus got as direct with Peter as he ever did anybody. You remember this? Jesus looked at Peter and he said, get out of my way, Satan. Remember this? Get behind me. Get behind me. Say, get out of my way. I'm going to Jerusalem, and you're not going to get in the way of my mission. You're not going to get in the way of that. Now, Peter, his motives were, it seems like Peter's motives were always good. Like, I don't want you to be crucified. We don't want you to die. We don't want that to happen. That can't happen to the Messiah. We believe you are Messiah. And because of that, we can't let you get killed. I'm not going to let you go there. Get behind me, Satan. Get out of my way. You can't ever accuse Peter of being a coward either because as they got to Jerusalem on that trip they were there got there you know the week of spent the week there Jesus would go into the city in the daytime go out in the evening so there were a number of things that happened during the week but on Thursday of course things got bad and they had that meal together Jesus with the apostles they went to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus spent some time praying. And there is when Judas led the soldiers into the garden and they were going to arrest Jesus. Jesus had been talking about this for a long time with the apostles. You know, it, wasn't a, it shouldn't have been a surprise to them, but it was in some respects. But during that time, the soldiers came to arrest him. Do you, do you remember which apostle it was who drew his sword and was ready to fight this thing out? Remember that? I love that. Because... It shows us that not only Peter wasn't a coward, he didn't just talk. He was ready to back it up. He's like, okay, if this is the way it's going to go down, I got my sword ready, and let's just fight this thing out here in the garden. I will die before I let them take you, Lord. I will kill these folks, or I'll die trying. And Jesus said, Peter, he cut the guy's, remember, he just had his sword. He swung that sword, you know, cut the guy's ear off. And Jesus essentially, calmly and kindly Peter, put your sword up. And he healed the guy's ear. And they arrested him and took him away, and he was crucified the next day, you know. 
I find that fascinating, and I think, I hope you will as well, that, that Peter, he said, Lord, you're not going to Jerusalem. Jesus chastised him for that. And when they were in Jerusalem, Peter was willing to die to keep him from being arrested. Now, can you think of what may have happened in Peter's life for him to get from that to this? What could get him from that, you're not going to Jerusalem, I am not going to let them arrest you, Lord. I'm not going to let that happen. I'll die. From that attitude to the attitude that's displayed in this letter that we're studying, where he says in the, in the verses we're, that, that Walter read for us that we're going to study now, where he says, essentially, here's where you get the courage to fight evil with good. Here is where you get the courage to subject yourself, to submit yourself to the powers that be, to a spouse, to a master in a servant-master relationship. This is how you get the courage and the power to respond to the difficulties of life with courage and with humility and with love and kindness. You know where, Peter, how we get from that guy the sword guy, the I'm not going to let you go to Jerusalem guy, to the guy in 1 Peter who says, our entire identity is wrapped up in Jesus. You know how you get from that one to this one? Because Peter followed Jesus on that Friday from a distance to the cross. And Peter showed up pretty early on Sunday morning and he peeked inside the tomb and he didn't see a body. That's how you get this guy. And I want to suggest to you, that's how you and I get to be that guy. That's how we get this. See, he said so much difficult, so many difficult things. He has said, oh, just let me just rehearse just, just for a minute. He's saying, live your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, you strike back at them. Oh, wait. That's not what he said. That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Wow, that's hard. That's hard, Peter. He had said, be subject to the Lord's sake, or for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor who's going to end up killing Peter, by the way. You subject yourself to every, you submit yourself to every human institution, the emperor, as bad as he was. Wait a second, how can I do that? That is incredibly difficult. But what about this? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. How can I submit myself to someone who's treating me badly? How can I submit myself to a master who is evil? Wives, subject yourself to your, to your own husbands. So be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. All of you have unity of mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. Bless the people who treat you badly. Return, return good to those who treat you with evil. 
Is that, is that what Peter's saying here? Yeah, he said it over and over and over again. And we, we kind of been building to this point, this climactic point here, where he says at the end of 1 Peter 3, here is how you do it. Here is where the confidence and the power come. He said all that stuff. And, and when we studied this last, verse 13, who is there to harm you? Who's going to harm you? You're going to suffer for righteousness' sake, verse 14. Uh, he says in verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So he said a lot about suffering. He said a lot about being submissive to, the, to, to people around you. He said a lot about returning good for evil. And now he comes to this. In verse 18 of chapter 3, I hope you're there with me. There's this pivotal word for. F-O-R, for. Because. Here's where you get that confidence. This, this is how you do it. And all this stuff we've been talking about for weeks now. You know, with this emphasizing what Peter's been teaching us, how in the world can I respond when people treat me badly, when they treat you badly because of your faith? How can you respond with kindness to that? Where, where can, how can you do that? Can you do that? Uh, maybe sometimes you and I have said, I just, I can't do that. You know what he's teaching us, basically? Peter is teaching us a Sermon on the Mount in, in a certain section of it. He, he said, you know, Jesus said, somebody strikes you on, your, on, on one cheek, you turn him the other as well. Ask you to go one mile, you go with him too. Remember that section of the Sermon on the Mount? That's exactly what Peter's doing here. He's teaching us that. I have read that text. I've read the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably read it and had the same kind of response. You mean to tell me, Lord, that if somebody slaps me, I can't slap them back? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And that's not all I'm telling you. I'm not only telling you not to retaliate. I'm telling you that you offer the other cheek as well. That's even more difficult. Are you kidding me? Somebody who hates me asked me to go one mile, and I'm supposed to go two miles with him? What? Where do you get the life, the heart-transforming that kind of, where do you get that kind of experience, that kind of confidence, that kind of, that kind of submissiveness, that kind of ability? Where do you get that for? Here it is. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Four, here's where the power comes. We've said it so many times, it's because it's in the Bible so many times. Whenever God challenges us to act in a way that is hard for us to act that way, whether it's giving up some sin or embracing some good deed, whatever He asks us to do that is difficult, the power for that is always found in having a relationship with Jesus that goes back to the crucifixion. And Peter ties all that together for us here because he has just said, I am asking you to do something that is impossible to do apart from the transformative work of the Holy Spirit as he works in bringing the cross emphasis alive in your heart. You see this? So that's what he's saying in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. You've got to read this in the context here. How can I do this? And I hope you are wondering... In the last few weeks, I hope 
Because I think if we read the Bible, uh, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause you and me to have this kind of reaction. I don't think I can do that, to be honest. I don't think I can do it. I'm not there yet. I can't do that. I can't treat these people well. I can't respond, like, I, I can't respond with goodness in that situation. I just, can't, I just can't do it. I hope you've had that response because that ought to be your response when you read some of the stuff that's in the Bible. Because it is impossible apart from God's work in your heart. It's impossible from a human perspective to do it. It's impossible to obey what Peter has just taught us in the last few verses. It's impossible to obey that apart from God's work in your heart. And here's how he works in your heart. He helps you to remember that God is not asking us to do anything that he wasn't first willing to do for us. In fact, he spells it out quite clearly in verse 18 when he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is... This is what you call substitutionary atonement. This is, this is the righteous for the unrighteous. You and I have sinned and, and we have mocked God. We have rebelled against God. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. We have told God essentially by our thoughts, words, and actions that we don't want to be His. That's what we've done. And Jesus, the righteous, the one who never sinned in any respect in word or thought or deed went to the cross the righteous on behalf of not just in our behalf but in our place he went there the righteous for the unrighteous and so I think what Peter is getting at here is how can I say I cannot suffer in the face of the world's hostility how can I say that when Jesus not only suffered, but he suffered as someone who in no respect deserved it? How can I say that when he was willing to do that? The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I love that expression. To be honest, I'd never noticed it quite like I did when I was studying it for this lesson. That he might bring us to God. It's a kind of a unique expression here. It's not said this way elsewhere in the New Testament, but it's a, it's a pretty cool little expression that he says. <laughs> he says, the cross, the suffering of Jesus, brings us to God. That is the purpose of the cross. If I may offer just a bit of an aside, though I, though I think it's relevant to what he's saying here. Remember last week, if you were here last week, we talked about verse 15 and the other verses around it. But verse 15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer, to give, an, to give a defense, give an answer when people ask you, why do you have this hope? And they ask you about your faith. And you say, well, let me tell you about my faith. What is it that is the content of your response? He's given us the answer here. The content of your response to people who ask you, hey, uh, why do you have hope? Why do you face hostility with goodness? Why, why when people treat you with, with evil, that you can respond to that with good? How, how do you do that? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. That's, that's the answer. Because Jesus Christ suffered in my place, and I did not deserve it. I deserved the crucifixion, I deserved the death, and he took it for me. And, and there's no way I can ever deserve or earn that, but nonetheless, he offered that to me. 
for me. And that is why He enables me, though imperfectly, He enables me to respond in a different kind of way. See, the cross, that's what He's saying when He says that He might bring us to God. What brings us to God? The cross brings us. And that's the message that we share with others. It's not a system, not a religion per se, but a person, a relationship with Jesus Christ. We share Jesus Christ and what He's done. That is why it is so important for you and me to remember again and again and again in our relationship with people outside the church, out out in the world, that we show them Jesus. Because that's the drawing power. That's what draws people. It is Jesus. It's not because we're eloquent. It's not because we got some sort of knack with words or whatever. It is the fact that they see in our words and actions, they see Jesus. And then we articulate that by talking to them about what he did. That's what evangelism is, you know? It's living in a certain way so that people ask. Sometimes it's bringing up the conversation ourselves. But it's always going to be pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ and the subsequent empty tomb on Sunday. That is what brings people to God. So he says, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were being were brought safely through water. <clears throat> Did you know that this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament? This is really, really, really difficult. And you may be sitting there and thinking, well, I know the answer to this. Well, if you have the answer, I'd love to hear your answer. I think I've probably read it before somewhere, and it may be the right answer, um, but it might not be. Because we honestly, I think most people honestly say, we don't know for sure what Peter's saying here. And so I'm not going to try to convince you of a specific position on this passage. There are a lot of questions here. And if you read through that and you thought, hmm, what is he talking about? Well, you're right there with the rest of us. Because we don't know for sure. But I do think we can get his main point, And that's what I want to focus on. Uh, let me say just a couple of words about it. Notice what he says. In verse 18, put to death in the flesh. We're okay with that. I mean, we understand that. Made alive in the spirit. I believe that's talking about the resurrection. That's the way those words are always used. In which, we start getting confused in verse 19. In which, what is the wits there? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits. Who are the spirits? In prison. Where are they in prison? Because they, I don't know who they are, formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, how did we get in Genesis 6 all of a sudden? Right there, if you're you're reading along with me, we got some questions here. How did they get back to Genesis 6? With Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism. Okay, now we're on comfortable ground. We're back talking about baptism. It's a lot that precedes that that we struggle with. So, let me tell you what I think he's talking about. And then I will tell you what I'm confident that he's teaching us. There, in some sense, Peter feels the need, for some reason, Peter feels the need to make a connection between Genesis 6. He sees in something that happened then 
and in what Jesus does at the cross and the resurrection that he wants to teach us. In Genesis 6, you may remember that the world had gotten very, very wicked. In fact, I want to, we're not going to stay here, but I want to read just a, just a verse or two from the first part of Genesis 6. Because I want to show you kind of how this, this ties in with what Peter is saying. Genesis 6, 1 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4 says, You've got the Nephilim on the earth of those days, and afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Okay. Now, something was going on in Genesis 6. Something was going on back in the days before the flood. And apparently, this according to, this is the way the Jewish tradition interpreted that, what was going on in Genesis 6. That there were angelic beings, these angelic beings who, in some sense, were able to occupy the earth. They were on the planet. They were on earth. They had relations with women on earth. Now, according to Jewish tradition, these were evil angels. They were evil spirits. They were non-human spiritual beings who were evil. And it seems as if in 1 Peter 3 that Peter adopted that interpretation and that he is saying, this is what I think he's saying, he is using these evil angels, these fallen angels of Genesis 6, these evil spirits of Genesis 6, who were a part of the corruption that spread all over the planet that led to the destruction of the earth in the flood, that Peter is using that as an illustration to show us that even at that time, that corruption that permeated the planet, the evil spirits, these evil angelic beings who were corrupt, part of the corrupting influence on the planet, that at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison, to these evil non-human beings, that God is the victor. In fact, in, in 1 Peter 3, when it says put to death, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That word proclaim sometimes means to announce victory, to proclaim a victory. And it seems, and this is, this is my take on it at least, that what Peter is saying here is that in the resurrection and after the resurrection, because of what the resurrection declared Jesus to be, that he proclaimed victory over the demonic realm. I think that's what Peter is saying. And I think that's his main point. Now, there are a lot of nuances in that, and there are different ways of reading this. Some, sometimes people believe that between the time that Jesus was crucified on Friday and the time that he was resurrected on Sunday, that this is a reference to Jesus going down into the Hadean realm and in some sense proclaimed victory over the uh, unseen realm, and it might be very well that that's what he's talking about. Could be. 
I think because of the end of verse 18 when it says made alive in the spirit that it's talking about Jesus' resurrection that he proclaims victory. Now, I don't want to get out too far. I don't want to go any farther than we already have gone in the weeds. But I, I want you to hear this. And I do think this is the most important thing for us to read. Whatever the nuances here, and I think there are elements of of things going on in, in Peter's world that we just don't know enough about in order to read this as clearly as we would like. But we do know this. In this text, Peter is saying, Jesus suffered, he was righteous, but he suffered for the unrighteous. He was resurrected, and because of the resurrection, he proclaimed victory over all. That we know. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. That's a clear reference to what was going on in Noah's day. The ark was being prepared, and with a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. And he, and he gets to verse 21, and he starts talking about baptism as a, as a way of our connecting ourselves with that victory, or God connecting us with that victory. And so here in this, in this difficult passage, we get this. Through the resurrection, Jesus proclaims victory. We know that to be true. We know that from other parts of Scripture. And reading through the passage here, we also get the sense that Peter wants his people to know, look, the resurrection shows that Jesus has power over all. And I think in, in Peter's world, there was this perception, certainly among the Christians he was writing to, that they felt like the world was against them. They felt like, man, everything's against us. The world is against us. It, it, they would attribute many things to demonic powers, that the demons are having their way. It seems as if evil is winning. The world has turned its face against us. What are we going to do? We are helpless in the face of that kind of cosmic opposition. That was going on, we know. And Peter says to them, the resurrection shows that Jesus has power over everything you can see and everything you can't see. Even in the resurrection, he preached, he proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison, these demonic beings. He proclaimed victory over them. And so you can know that no matter what happens in the world, no matter how dark it gets, no matter if it seems as if the whole world is against you, and the demonic world itself has aligned itself against you, you can know that because of the resurrection, the victory has already been won. Amen. He says, and I appreciate Tori's prayer to this effect, that baptism is where God connects us to that victory. And so he uses that story of Noah that story of Noah and his family, the eight of them, that God rescued them on the ark. He rescued them through water, that that water was a destructive force on the earth, but it lifted up Noah and his family, and it brought salvation to them. And he says in a, in a similar way, in a, in a corresponding way, baptism, it saves you. It's, it's not some physical thing that removes dirt from your body. 
but it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So just as that water lifted up Noah and his family from a corrupt planet, from the corruption that surrounded them, that water saved them from this corruption, lifted them up, so too you and I find our way from the corruption to salvation in the waters of baptism. It is the answer of a good conscience. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Uh, many, many people think that this has to do with questions that they would ask people in the early days of the church. And we do something similar to this as well. That when someone wants to be baptized, we ask them at least this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe that He died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that He was resurrected? That your answer to those questions, followed by your baptism in the water, that appeal to God for a good conscience, that answer of a good conscience to those questions, and you're demonstrating your submissiveness to the work of God in the waters of baptism as you're immersed in water and brought up, resurrected. You see, even in the act of baptism itself, you have corruption, the corruption of death, symbolized in the water as you die and are buried. But then you're resurrected just as Jesus was. And therefore you are lifted up and you are saved from the corruption in the world through, he says it here in the end of verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last idea. I'll come back to baptism in just a moment. But he says he has been exalted with power over all. Verse 22, he has gone into heaven and he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. See, you know, he says it again, I think what we were talking about earlier, that whatever, whatever Peter's talking about specifically when he says Jesus went and preached, proclaimed to the spirits in prison, I think he connects it here. He is showing us that it doesn't matter what there is. Things we can see, whether it's governments, political powers, people, or if it's things we cannot see, ideologies and philosophies and the work of Satan in the world bringing about evil and sowing discord among people and stirring up hate and strife and anger. We see that and some of it we can't see but we know where it comes from. Peter is saying because of the resurrection of Jesus and his subsequent exaltation, he has been enthroned. He is now at the right hand of God and what has happened as a result of that? All this stuff all the stuff that the world might throw at the church, all of, it, all of it, maybe we need to think about that now. Regardless of what the world does, regardless of what the government decides, regardless of, of uh, if secularism has full sway over our country, regardless of what happens here, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and every government and every authority and every non-human created being, an angel, whether good or bad, every demonic power, everything has been subjected. Everything is under his feet. That's what Peter's teaching us here. So how in the world can you and I return good for evil? How can we be optimistic in the face of suffering? How can we encounter persecution from the world and not give up? Because Jesus went to the cross, because He was resurrected, and because He ascended and was exalted to the right hand of God the Father, where He reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that. And so whatever happens in the world, 
whatever happens with countries and powers, whatever happens with pandemics and diseases, whatever happens with conflict and wars, whatever happens in the world, whatever happens to us personally, whether it's disease and cancer diagnoses and chronic pain or struggles that we have, loss of loved ones, difficulty with relationship, whatever happens to us personally, we can know that Jesus has already proclaimed the victory. And He now reigns. And it is our calling to submit to His Lordship and His Kingship and live under that authority and show the world what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And when they see that in us, when they ask us for a reason, for the hope that's in us, we show them the cross. That's where our hope lies. We show them the empty tomb. That is why we can live different kinds of lives. Because we know how this story ends. We know how the story ends. If you're not a Christian, this morning, we already talked a little bit about what Peter said about baptism. There's nothing special about this water behind me or the water of a lake or pool or wherever it is someone might get baptized. Nothing special about the water. What is special is what it signifies. When you go down into the waters of baptism, you are going there with a good conscience. Not, not in the sense that you're sinless, certainly, but you're going down into the water because you are in that very act. You are confessing, you're confessing that I'm not my own. I identify with Jesus Christ. I want Him to be my Lord and Savior. And in that death, we bear you in water, we raise you up just as Jesus was raised from the tomb, and He was exalted. So you, because of what Jesus has done, are resurrected and exalted to live a different kind of life. That's what baptism is. And it may be that there's someone here who wants to identify with Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism and to be saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We invite you now to come if you need to, or to ask for prayers. Let's stand and let's sing this song.